Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Stick a fork in it. 2020 is done. Well done, in fact. While this has been a year filled with unparalleled trials and tribulations, there has been much to inspire, uplift, and downright laugh about. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Devin DeWolf, who inspired his crew of red beans to make a significant difference in the lives of healthcare workers who put their lives on the line this year for us all. Then we'll enjoy a laugh with a giant saber-brandishing bunny before hearing about an incredible lawsuit that pitted local Louisiana brewers against a fictional Japanese monster. It's time to raise a toast to a year we're all happy to see come to a close on this week's Louisiana Eats. In the earliest days of the pandemic, when the number of positive coronavirus cases first spiked in Louisiana and all restaurants were ordered closed, there was a lot of anxiety over what was going to happen next. Shortly after the shutdown, filmmakers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay reached out to me with an idea for a documentary that would chronicle how New Orleans' service industry was responding to the crisis. Among the people they interviewed was local activist Devin DeWolf, who provided a much-needed beacon of hope in an uncertain time. Devin's the founder of the crew of Red Beans, whose signature all-bean-decorated costumes have been a Lundigras tradition since 2008. His wife, Annalise, works at University Medical Center. One of her workplace stories inspired Devin to come up with a plan that supported both hospitality and healthcare workers pushed to the brink by the pandemic. He spoke with Marion Gay back in March about an initiative that would soon be called Feed the Frontline NOLA. So my wife, who's an ER doctor, would come home from work and tell me about work. And one day she said a nurse had brought cookies to share for everybody in the ER that night. And it was like a game changer morale booster for them in the ERs especially, but also in the ICUs, their job is normally stressful. So COVID is like a whole other level of stress that they've never seen before in their career. It's definitely the greatest challenge they've ever faced, and they're the ones that are gonna save us, presumably. So after she told me about that, the idea hit me. Um, oh, I know a bunch of restaurant owners, and I know that they're struggling and I know the hospital workers need really good food to boost their morale light right now, so let's just connect the dot. And I placed a $60 order of food, a little Brazilian dessert called a Brigadeiro, which is really wonderfully shared individually. I sent a little email to my crew members and put it on Instagram. 
and asked for donations so that we could order more food. The first day, $500 came in from my crew members. The second day, $1,500 came in. The third day, it was $3,000. And what I started to do was expand as quickly as I could because every restaurant in our city is um, in a life or death battle right now for their business. And New Orleans has so many good restaurants that I would like to try to do something to save them if possible. So we started expanding and more donations started coming in and the word kind of spread out. And instead of doing 60 people getting a dessert at my wife's hospital, we started going to all the hospitals. So yesterday we made about 30 deliveries to 14 different locations in New Orleans, which is covering almost every ER and ICU. And we paid for 1,052 meals yesterday, which is somewhere in the $6,000 to $8,000 range. And we are doing that every single day for as long as humanly possible, aka as long as donations keep coming to us. And to make it slightly even better, we started hiring musicians to be the delivery people because they can safely deliver to each hospital. They know the routine. And obviously they're out of work right now. So it's become a triple bonus situation that is bringing food love to all of these hospital workers in New Orleans. Yeah, it's <laughs> like you're bringing together all these different networks of people who are struggling in their own way. I have a weird skill set and um, I like making spreadsheets. <laughs> so what a kinds of impact or response are you seeing uh, as a result of your deliveries from healthcare staff, even the restaurants? So almost every hospital in New Orleans is being served food by me, or the ERs and the ICUs, which is all of the staff members that work there, not just the doctors, the nurses, the techs, the security, um, the people who are cleaners. Some of those restaurant or hospitals are getting two or three deliveries per day because we're getting, you know, it's a 24-hour hospital, so we're feeding the day shift, and then we come back and feed the night shift. And then sometimes we just give them cookies. We periodically get messages that are from nurses or doctors, and they will say things like, you do not know how much I appreciate this because my day has been so awful, and this is the you know, the first time I've eaten today and the fact that it's delicious food from a really good New Orleans restaurant, it means a lot. And I've heard from a couple different restaurants that have said to me, if not for this order, we would be closed. I'll say what's also been amazing is I've gotten message from people. Uh, there was a woman who messaged us and said, um, my father died. She said, uh, you know, you're not sending food to this place yet, but I heard about you. And, um, you know, they took, they took really good care. So can you please send them food? And we did. And then she was just like very happy because even though terrible her father had passed away, um, it was a way that she could show her appreciation to the hospital staff. And I think for the hospital staff, when they're dealing with this thing, they obviously know how many of their patients die. And to receive that pick-me-up, I think, is a, it's going to help them kind of sustain 
because we need them to, you know, sustain. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think it's helpful for people to have a way they can do something because so many people, it's like, you know, you're just supposed to stay inside. What, what can I do? Exactly. And this is a way that you're not only helping a hospital worker, you're helping a restaurant, you're helping a musician all at the same time. And, um, you know, in times like this, I think it's incumbent upon ourselves to do whatever we can. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I hope I keep it going. I don't know how long it'll last because it's seemingly unsustainable to spend $7,000, $8,000 a day on food. Like, obviously things are terrible right now, the worst in my lifetime ever. And that's probably true for everybody. So having a little tiny ray of hope is, uh, I think, a good thing. That was Crew of Red Beans founder and local activist Devin DeWolf back in March. On May 3rd, Devin and the Crew of Red Beans wrapped up this incredible initiative. In the two-plus months of operation, Feed the Frontline NOLA delivered over 10,000 cups of coffee and cookies and more than 90,000 meals. That translated into $100,000 into the pockets of out-of-work musicians and $900,000 to New Orleans independent restaurants. Today, Devin and the crew of Red Beans are working on a new effort, Feed the Second Line, which seeks to provide food and employment to New Orleans culture bearers. Learn more at FeedTheSecondLine.com. Coming up next, we continue our look back on 2020, remembering a lighter moment from the pandemic involving a saber-brandishing bunny that became a worldwide sensation. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House in New Orleans French Quarter, now offering dine-in as well as takeout Tuesday through Saturday, including toasty warm mufaladas, gumbo, frozen Pimm's cups, and more. They may be reached online at thenapoleonhouse.com and at 504-524-9752. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. As the world shelters in place, now more than ever, social media connects us distracts us, and reminds us of what we miss. Over Easter weekend, there was one video shot in New Orleans' French Quarter that became an international sensation. You may have seen it yourself. It begins on an eerily deserted Royal Street. With nose and mouth covered by a bright bandana, 
a towering six-foot pink and white bunny rabbit appears in the distance, brandishing a sword. Skipping down the street, it begins to sing. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the champagne trail to savor for your Easter quarantine. As the creature approaches the camera, it pauses at the curb where an ice bucket with a bottle of champagne awaits. Using its menacing sword, the bunny uncorks the bottle, splashing champagne into the empty street. After carefully placing the bottle back on ice, the floppy-eared beast continues its Easter song and dance. Bringing all the girls and boys, baskets full of adult joy, masking gloves and pure I'll keep you clean. The bunny sabers another bottle, and then another. If the iconic pink facade wasn't already a giveaway, you can tell by now, it's hopping in front of Brennan's restaurant. Happy Easter from Brennan's. We miss you. Posted to the Brennan's Instagram account and shared by the City of New Orleans official social media, the video quickly went viral. Altogether, the video was viewed over 25,000 times. New Orleans Twitter in particular had a field day. I don't know whether to be delighted or terrified, one person wrote. Stuff of nightmares, posted another. Brennan's bunny memes sprung up immediately, not to mention parody videos. So what brought this mysterious masked man in a bunny suit to Royal Street over Easter weekend? Let's back up a bit. After Brennan's reopened in 2014, new owners Ralph Brennan and Terry White started a champagne and sparkling wine happy hour. In the patio, to add some pizzazz, the staff began practicing the art of sabrage on those bottles of bubbly. The practice was such a hit, it's become a weekly tradition during Friday's champagne happy hour there and other special events too. On Easter weekend, just guess who might be wielding that champagne saber in Brennan's patio. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down. While Brennan's bunny video went viral, it was just one of several funny bits posted on social media from March through May while the restaurant was completely shut down. In late April, we spoke to the man behind the videos, the saber-brandishing bunny himself, Christian Pendleton. Hi, I'm Christian Pendleton, the general manager of Brennan's Restaurant in the historic French Quarter of New Orleans, Louisiana. Christian, I've known you for a long time, and I know you're a gracious host and you're a wonderful manager. What I never knew was that you also had the makings of a social media sensation. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that I do, but I appreciate it. Hmm, well, the numbers tell the truth. So we are all operating in crazy times, doing things we never could have imagined. How in the world did you decide to take on keeping the Friday afternoon sabering tradition at Brennan's alive, despite the fact that the restaurant's closed. So 
the sabering tradition in Bubbles at Brennan's has, you know, as you know, is one of the additions since Mr. Brennan and Mr. White took over Brennan's. And I think like all of us in these times, we're looking for those as many moments of normalcy as we can. So it's that virtual happy hour, the sabering, the bubbles at Brennan's. And then it was about uh, everyone just needing to laugh. I mean, there is just everywhere you turn, it is nothing but serious, um, life-changing news. And at Brennan's, we, we want to have fun. I mean, we, we fancy ourselves a fine dining restaurant, but very much so one with a sense of humor. Like, there's nothing better than the sound of laughter in a restaurant. It's relaxing, it's calming. And so we wanted to bring that to all of our guests that can't be in our dining rooms right now. So the crazier, the better. Let's talk about the material that you've covered. Didn't you start off just looking a little dazed and confused in the middle of the street on Royal Street, wondering where everybody was? Yes, and I still am dazed and confused, wondering where everybody is. Okay, I can do this by myself, no problem. That was kind of the first one because if, if you haven't been in the French Quarter recently, it is completely empty. It, it is eerie uh, just because no one's there. So we thought we would just have a lot of fun with showing people how empty the quarter is. Well, that somehow led directly into perhaps <laughs> the most menacing Easter bunny. I, I really hope Stephen King got a load of the pink Brennan's bunny with the big saber in the street. Tell me about that one. So the, the funny thing is when we did it, there was zero desire to be menacing. <laughs> it was hey, it's Easter, and the Easter Bunny is an annual celebrity guest that savors on the Friday before Easter. This was, again, just that opportunity to show people and remind people how empty the quarter is. So for us, it was very family-friendly. It was very funny. Here's the Easter Bunny. We have a little fun with the songs and kind of trying to tie in the good advice that the doctors are giving us about COVID. And then all of a sudden, it becomes quite literally a worldwide sensation because they were playing it in India, which we found of all places. And the headline was like something along the lines of psychotic bunny with saber hopping through empty French Quarter. Kind of like, wow, like that is so not what we were trying to do in the purge music that people put behind it from the movie and everything. It was just amazing. There are so many ways to open champagne. I like to do it a little differently than most. My tribute to Fred Rogers and the Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Uh, that, that was, I think that was the very first funny one we did. And then I grabbed a sword. A sword is a knife for a really big sandwich. So is that what then gave you a little license to don a blonde wig and become the Turtle King? I love my turtles. Here at Brennan's alone, I have 10 of them. Bechamel, 
Espanol. Let's talk about the turtle. I never knew you had the Turtle King in you, Christian. Well, I mean, I have always, uh, Charlie Williamson, our, who's worked for Ralph for many, many years, his executive vice president, kind of gave me the uh, one of the additional job titles of Turtle Wrangler. So, of course, the sensation that Tiger King has become, there was that natural bridge to the Turtle King. And then what was probably my favorite moment of that video is when I first came out of the bathroom dressed. Uh, my AGM, Paul Martin and Laura Bell and Braith, who've been wild in helping me do all this, they just could not stop laughing. There was no, oh, you need to change this. We need to add. There was just sheer laughter. And Paul's comments was marvelous. Don't oh, okay. change a thing. Just marvelous. And so uh, we went to it and had a good time with it. Much to my surprise, the pink bunny reappeared. I, I didn't expect all that wildlife. Well, who am I to deny people something, a little levity in life to, to not have the bunny return? And especially if you watch the show, there is some references to bunnies in the show. So that was a very easy to pull that back in. Bunny, let me borrow your saber. Bunnies, I bet you wouldn't go after one of my turtles. And you know what would happen if you did? <laughs> now, everybody can just go to Brennan's Instagram account and just laugh their way through the entire collection, correct? Absolutely. Please go on to Instagram, laugh with us. Tell me I'm ridiculous. Tell me I am the worst nightmare you've ever had when you see me in the bunny suit hopping down the street. Just laugh. It's it's good to laugh. It's healthy to laugh. We all need to laugh, and that's what we're trying to do. Well, Christian, I look forward to the next time I can be at your door on Royal Street. Thank you, Christian. My pleasure. We are so excited to. It looks like we're getting close to opening here, um, and I just I can't wait to see you and figure out some way to give you a hug while maintaining some sort of distance, but. We'll figure it out. I think I might go get some mannequin arms from like Macy's and just kind of reach them out and around and give people a hug as they come back in. It's going to be kind of hard to put that wackadoodle Christian Pendleton back in the box, I'm afraid. I, you know, I'm that same person every day. Just ask my staff, ask Ralph, because he sometimes he just looks at me and shakes his head and just, okay, so... <laughs> That was general manager of Brennan's Restaurant, Christian Pendleton, speaking with us in late April. In the weeks following our conversation, Brennan's began reopening its doors, and predictably, Christian transitioned away from his role as social media sensation. You can still find all of his videos on Instagram at Brennan's NOLA. Here comes Peter Cottontail. Hopping down the bunny trail, hippity hopping, Easter's on its way. Try to do the things you should, maybe if you're extra good, he'll roll lots of Easter eggs your way. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the Crescent City Farmer's Market. What was once a small weekly market of 12 vendors evolved over the past quarter century to become a cornerstone of the local food community in New Orleans. 
Today, they host scores of farmers, fishers, and food producers in the region, in addition to the over 100,000 shoppers who spend millions of dollars on their goods each year. Before the COVID-19 crisis, the Crescent City Farmers Market operated in five neighborhoods each week. On a sun-kissed autumn afternoon in 2014, Louisiana Eats stopped by a Wednesday market that was bustling with activity. There, vendors from New Orleans and across the region were participating in what co-founder Richard McCarthy called the habitual ritual of selling the fruits of one's labor. So many people, so many wonderful vendors, so much good food, and I'm glad to be part of it. Handing out samples of jalapeno cornbread was baker Nicole Bordley from Gentilly. Try it, and as you walk in, tell people, hey, there's some great cornbread. That personal connection with shoppers is a major draw for a wide cross-section of sellers, some of whom regularly make the hours-long drive to peddle their products here. Buyers appreciate the fresh, sustainable food options. What we do is we try to cut out the middleman and bring the product straight from the boat to the table in the home. Standing behind her hanging scale, Kay Brandhurst of Four Winds Seafood was selling 16 to 20 count just caught jumbo shrimp at $6 a pound. Try finding a better deal than that at the supermarket. The more you buy, the lower it goes. Of course, it's not just about good values for the customer. Elsewhere, sugarcane farmer Rob Romero of Three Brothers Farm described the market as a place where fishers and farmers can sell directly to the consuming public at a fair price. I don't know if you've ever heard the old saying, but farmers buy everything they need at retail, and then they sell everything they gotta have at wholesale. The farmer's in the middle of a squeeze so I come to the farmer's market and I, I miss out all the other factories and I sell directly to people who are buying. Bob explained that many of the vendors that day wouldn't have been able to come back after Hurricane Katrina without having an outlet where customers could find and purchase their products. I mean, you know, it's, if it wouldn't be for the market, where would they go? There's a lot of stories like that here. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of them. This is why this market is so important. In early 2020, at the dawn of this pandemic, the Crescent City Farmers Market faced a dilemma involving the primary mission of MarketUmbrella.org, the nonprofit which has overseen the market for 25 years. Their mission? To promote greater social interaction between communities and good health among citizens, something that truly seems at odds in today's new world, as Angelina Harrison, the market's director, explained. At its heart, the farmer's market is a community gathering space. That quickly became apparent despite our best efforts that we just couldn't take that essential function out of our market space. So even when we were limiting the number of shoppers, doing spacing between vendors, the hand sanitizing requirements, still people were using it as a hangout space. They would only let so many people in at a time. Well, that only lasted a week or so. 
Regular vendor Mary Regan of TNR Dairy Farm remembers when the Market Umbrella leadership decided to close all six of their markets in mid-March. This was potentially a worrisome turn of events for the fourth generation farmer. 90% of our income come from, you know, down there at the markets. And we got kind of worried, but after a week or so, we kind of got things together and then it just started picking up. You know, there were just weird shortages at that time as people were clearing grocery shelves and stockpiling all the things. So to connect, you know, our supply chain, our growers and fishers, bakers, makers, all of our vendors to this just incredible demand that was happening. We piloted this idea of a no contact drive through market. Partnering with Parkway Bakery in Mid-City, Market Umbrella set up a drive through operation in the restaurant's parking lot, launching this new style market on April 5th. There is just no better parking lot in the entire city of New Orleans to host a market in. They just extended an incredibly warm welcome um, and have to this day, hosting our markets there on Sundays. The first couple of weeks, Justin was there making barbecue beef sandwiches, handing out cold drinks to our customers. You know, customers were super happy to have the access for many of our vendors. It was their first sales opportunity really since the brunt of the pandemic started to hit us. It was really a tremendous community effort and embrace. While there was no shortage of goodwill on that first day, it quickly became apparent that there were some major kinks that needed ironing out to keep the drive through experience sustainable. That first market we did was supposed to be over at 12. Well, it went till 3.30 that evening and we still had to shut it down because it was just crazy. It's kind of amazing that it went as well as it did. Over 500 cars came through that day. People did tell us that they waited over two hours and everybody got their needs met, but how can you expect for a customer to do that to themselves every week? Everyone could recognize that there had to be a more efficient way to do that. To participate in that first drive through market, customers had to contact 10 or 15 vendors to individually place each of their orders. They might have been required to call, text, or email, depending on what the vendor stipulated, and then pay through any number of apps like Venmo or PayPal. Basically, it left it up to each vendor how to organize their orders, and there were just so many lessons learned about how to best put orders together, how to alphabetize them, how to keep track of who's picked them up and who's already paid. We needed tools to help make that process more efficient. Just as the world seemed to embrace video conferencing overnight, Angelina noticed a sudden groundswell of customer interest in the farmer's market app, What's Good, a system that Market Umbrella had originally tried to promote last year. Seeing a solution to their drive through woes, the staff got to work getting vendors to sign up, link their bank accounts, and post their products online. Considering how some vendors are still using flip phones, their turnaround speed on this was staggering. I think it was about two and a half weeks from flip phone to online store. We became technical 
<laughs> technical assistance providers for all of our vendors, helping them to navigate, basically creating an e-commerce platform for themselves. In some cases, that was quite easy, and in some cases, it was quite a lift. But we envisioned, um, you know, a week to ten days to get all of our vendors ready to do it. Another week to get the lineup and layout and um, customer promotion. It it was a little hard right at first, but we done a little thing where they explained to us how to do it now, and, and I just got in there and 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 started and got it in. But now it's it's simple. You know, I wish we'd have had it years ago. It's just. It just saved so much time. I don't know how they pulled it all together, but they're a group of amazing ladies. I know that I tell them all the time, thank you. Hi, how you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm great today. Angelina, it's so nice to see you, but you know, hard to recognize each other with these masks on. Incognito, for sure. On April 26, the no-touch drive-through market returned to Parkway's parking lot and has continued every Sunday since with few complications. The wait time all around has shrunk from hours to minutes. Oh, somebody's behind me. I better move. Yep. Thank you, Angelina. So vehicles pull in there to wait. That's when we help them out with placards. We provide a um, template for customers to print out, to write their name on, mark off the vendors that they've purchased from, and that allows them to be identified once they get into the market to really expedite the process. Okay, we'll help you with your truck and we'll get you in the market. You never have to leave the car, the vendors come straight to you. And Pop their trunk. Uh, we've got market staff on each turn of the market announcing to the vendors on that leg which customers are approaching and then vendors pull those orders, which are now organized by the app, um, and they just drop the orders in the trunk. Thank you so much, and have a, you have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. Uh, until they've made the whole round, uh, we help them close the trunk at the end, and they're on their merry way. Thank you. Thanks to Angelina Harrison, Dairy Farmer, Mary Regan, and all the vendors who have made the Crescent City Farmers Market a local food institution in New Orleans. Details on market locations and a full list of vendors are available at crescentcityfarmersmarket.org. Where did the tradition of sabering champagne originate? And how's it done? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about it when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, 
request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where did the tradition of sabering champagne originate? And how do you do that anyhow? When you saber a bottle of champagne, you use a saber or a cleaver or similar heavy object to open a champagne bottle. The act itself is called sabrage. A properly sabered bottle causes the bottle itself to break off cleanly at the lip with the cage flying off in advance, followed by the cork with the bottle's lip intact. Depending on the instrument you're wielding, it's pretty easy to do. First, whether using sword or knife, it's the blunt edge, not the sharp one used. Holding the bottle from the base in one hand, the sword swiftly travels up the neck to the rim, where, with a single motion, cork, rim, and cage are released, along with a celebratory stream of bubbly. This technique is said to date back to Napoleon Bonaparte and his amazing victorious army. According to Napoleon, champagne was a necessity in times of war, quaffing it in both victory and defeat. People threw bottles to the returning soldiers on horseback, who then simply sabered them open. In legend, this became a hallmark of Napoleon's army. But alas, it's the stuff of legends, having never been historically substantiated. The weekly sabering tradition in Brennan's Royal Street patio is creating new legends and lore alike. By the way, the ceremony at Brennan's is conducted with the full blessing of the International Confrère de Sabre d'Or. The confrère made a visit to Brennan's a few years back, where they inspected the procedure in action and declared Brennan's an official sabrage caveau. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. One of the hallmarks of small craft breweries is their ability to come up with fun, playful names for their beers. In Shreveport, Great Raft Brewing offers a black lager called Reasonably Corrupt, a tongue-in-cheek jab at Louisiana politics. In Hammond, Gnarly Barley Brewing makes an IPA called Hopopotamus, which presents hippo-sized notes of orange, grapefruit, and lemon. But you've got to be careful. Even the most innocuous-sounding name can get you in a heap of legal trouble. Our friends at NOLA Brewing learned that the hard way when they found themselves in a trademark infringement dispute with lawyers representing a huge Japanese client. A real monster, in fact. 
President and COO Dylan Lintern tells us the story. Hey, I'm Dylan Lintern with NOLA Brewing Company, uh, and we make a beer called Hoppy Right Infringement. Dylan, how did Hoppy Right Infringement get its name? All right, we'll have to rewind and start from the beginning on that one because it's a little bit of a story there, which is kind of, it's kind of fun and uh, a little bit different. Our brewmaster, Peter Cardew, has been brewing his first, the first batch of beer he brewed was the day John Lennon died, so he's been brewing that long. He has been known in the industry forever as Hopzilla. That's his nickname, it's on his shirts, so we kind of did a tribute to him and everything he's accomplished in the brewing world, and came out with our first double IPA, and we called it Mecca Hopzilla. We named it Mecha Hopzilla after the mechanical version of Godzilla in the movies. We thought it was hilarious. <laughs> the can design was the mechanical Hopzilla climbing on top of all the buildings in New Orleans. The plaza building was there. The Superdome was there. It's biting into a hop cone. It's dripping all over the city. And the same thing with the tap handle. It kind of mimicked that can. And it was really cool. Everything was going great. We had this great tap handle design, this great can design. And about a year into the project, we got a cease and desist letter straight from Japan from Toho Inc., which is creators of Godzilla the movie. So it was an international cease and desist. (laughs) It was going to go straight to federal court because it was international. Ouch. (laughs) So we're like, oops. Wow, we upset Godzilla. It really wasn't until we filed for a trademark until they even knew our product existed. So that's how we got caught. We kind of got, you know, got ourselves caught there. We filed for a trademark and they have a little, you know, anything that comes up with the word Zilla and it dings them and they see it and they come after them. And they, they've won almost every single case they've ever gone after except for one. I think it was Glad Trash Bags makes Bagzilla. It was the only one who's ever beat them. <laughs> yeah, so, but I can't imagine that Nola Bruin we, we, had the... Uh, we don't have that glad trash bag money. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's protection on things like this. It's called parody, and, and you're allowed to parody certain products and certain images. There's other breweries that make beer called Hopzilla and things that are similar in nature, but they were claiming our tap handle looked like a toy. It was the biggest problem that they had with us. So they couldn't really protect the image, they couldn't really protect the name, because both of those were parodies. The, the actual thing they got us on was that our tap handle looked like a toy. So you get this uh, cease and desist order, then what happens? We had the cease and desist, and then we just kind of ignored it for a while, honestly. <laughs> we said, oh, I don't know, are they serious? I don't think, no, they just kind of wanted to flex their muscles, who knows. Uh, but then we got a follow-up a few months later saying, uh, you know, did you get our cease and desist? Like, yeah, we sure did. So we, that's, at that point, we uh, went to our lawyers. We had just gotten intellectual property insurance, which was some, I don't know how, we just got it the year before. <laughs> so now our intellectual property insurance covered us to go to fight this with a legal battle. So we would pay for our legal fees and all that stuff. So we said, all right, we'll at least explore it because if, if we didn't have IV insurance we probably weren't gonna fight it we probably just rolled over right then so we actually uh, had a team of lawyers work on it for almost nine months and they were claiming the parody law and there was a lot of stuff going back and forth
they had a team of 12 lawyers come in from Japan. They ended up coming and seizing our computers and taking them all. This was them just looking for evidence that we actually did try to make it look like them. And so they came in and, and said, all right, sorry, we're going to have to take all your computers. Uh, we're going to go through them. They had a warrant, all that stuff. So we're like, okay, this is getting real serious real fast. <laughs> like, oh my God, we're just trying to make beer over here. They just went looking through every single email and looking through every single thing that we did. And they kind of caught us pretty red-handed there. There's, there's an email to our to our tap panel company that said, I want it to look just like Godzilla. <laughs> so, so we're like, oh boy, I guess we did say that. And then I had to sit through a six-hour deposition and they deposed me pretty hard, asking me the same questions over and over again, trying to catch me and trying to trip me up. And, and obviously, I, my, my favorite answer of the day was, I don't recall. <laughs> you know, obviously, at the end of the day, our lawyers still thought we had a pretty good case because it still is a parody. It's not like we took any of their materials and are trying to make money off of There is protection under parody law. So our lawyer still is like, yeah, we probably have a good shot here. It's 50-50, maybe 60-40 us. But then we uh, read the you know, the, the small print there on our IP insurance, and if we lost, we would have to pay all their legal fees too, which were over a million dollars at the time. So we're like, oh, I'm not going to roll the dice on that. And at that point, we just kind of rolled over and said, all right, we're done. We're going we're gonna to give in. We're going to change the name. What do we need to do? They were actually very nice and let us, you know, go through all of our inventory product. We sold a bunch of empty cans that we hadn't used yet. They said, you can finish that out when it's done, then, then you got to change the name. So they kind of worked with us in the end, and, and they were kind of nice enough to not just, you know, that would have cost us a ton of money to throw all that inventory away, and they didn't make us do that. And that's when we changed the name at that point to Mecca. The beer was called Mecca Hopzilla, but out in the market, people who loved the beer, their nickname for it, they just called it Mecca. Let me get a Mecca. So we just dropped the Hopzilla at that point. We had to change a little bit of, of the coloring on the on the cans and even on the tap handle. And then we had to get approval from Toho Inc. on that before we could release it. So we, we, we did all the sketches, we, we made all the changes, then we had to send it to the lawyers and they approved it. So after we changed to Mecca, we let that ride for a few years. But at that time, the, the industry was kind of changing and the style of IPA that the, the consumer want was changing. So we decided to, to come up with a brand new double IPA. So we kind of scratched the recipe from Mecca, creating a new recipe, going a different direction. So we wanted to get off of the whole Mecca theme, but kind of have a nod to it as, as well. And so we changed it to Hoppy Right Infringement. And so this was our kind of, you know, Way to way to say, all right, Toho, we're gonna roll over, we're gonna change it completely, but we're not gonna let you, you know, not have a jab at you at least. Copyright infringement has done better than both Mecca and Mecca Hopzilla ever did. So it has become a staple of our brand. Uh, we've won multiple awards with it. We won a gold medal last year for best double IPA in the country at the Best of Craft Beer Awards. Uh, it's one of my favorite beers. It's one of it's a house favorite of all of our employees. Uh, I, I couldn't be prouder of that product, which took us almost two years to develop as well. I love a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> and a little jab, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really, us first Godzilla. That was Dylan Lintern of NOLA Brewing. Their copyright infringement, double IPA, is available for curbside pickup, or you can sample it while enjoying a meal in their tap room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans.
Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting along with recipes and videos too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars. D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's all-natural preservative-free pasta is available in traditional forms, as well as their signature alligator, crawfish, and fleur-de-lis-shaped pastas. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by The Commissary, Dickie Brennan's latest venture offering complete family-style meals, featuring signature dishes from Dickie's other restaurants, and DIY kits for home cooking. Takeout is available Thursday through Sunday at 634 Orange Street in the Lower Garden District. You can reach them at 504-274-1850 or visit online thecommissarynola.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.